Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And today is another Seafood Innovations episode, which we have had a lot of lately, which is super exciting. But what's cool about this one is this one is more specific to wild-caught fisheries. We love hearing about new technologies in wild-caught fisheries because it's always super interesting and very tangible and easy to understand why it's needed. So this technology addresses something that is very difficult for fishermen, which we will get into in the conversation that we had with today's guest, who was Peter Macy. He is the chief business officer of Blue Ocean Gear. You can find them at blueoceangear.com. We had a really cool conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, I want to remind you, as I always do, to please subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen, so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. Remember to follow us on Twitter, at AquademiaPod. If you want to contact us for any reason, like sponsorship, we want to be a guest or have a topic suggestion, visit our contact us form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you don't mind taking a couple minutes and leaving us a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use, we would really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. So thank you so much. And we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. We're sitting down today with uh, Peter Macy, who is the Chief Business Officer at Blue Ocean Gear. How's it going, Peter? Great, thanks. Blue Ocean Gear has identified a problem and has addressed it and is fixing a problem that fishermen have. But before we get into what that is, Peter, I want to learn about you. Let's talk about who you are and how you got to where you are. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess my story starts in Rhode Island. I grew up the child of a fisheries oh, right. biologist uh, in a fishing village and, you know, was always in and Whereabouts? around. I grew up in Wickford. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And my my dad was a professor or a, a scientist at URI at the Bay Campus there. Oh, wait. What, what's his name? Bill Macy. He ran the aquarium building. Yeah, I, went, I, I, I did the aquaculture fishery tech program at URI, but okay. I didn't never had him as a professor. So Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up um, helping him. You know, I was diving at 14, helping him collect squid. Um, you know, went off to college and decided I was going to do international business. And that kind of took me down a different path. I you know worked on Wall Street for a while and then moved out to California, um, had the entrepreneurial bug, moved out here for the first kind of internet boom, um, you know, ended up going back to business school at Berkeley and then um, ended up back in banking, worked with a former boss of mine, set up a small operation and then moved to Wells Fargo, which was, you know, a great brand, great way to work with middle market companies. Um, I always liked working with entrepreneurs. And so I worked there for a number of years and then um, about 13 years ago, left um, and decided to start a small fund uh, with a former colleague of mine. And that was around the gaming space. But we did a, you know, a handful of deals kind of around software and hardware and uh, even development of a casino um, and turned one of those businesses into into a company that we, we took public and enlisted and then sold um, to a private equity firm. Um, and I stepped back and I said, OK, I always wanted to start a company. I did it. But, you know, the thing that was always missing for me was 
a sense of, of connection to my product um, and really being passionate about what I was doing. And so I said, well, what do I want to do next? I've got this you know, second half of my career ahead of me. Um, you know, what do I spend time at the dinner table, talk to my kids about? And, you know, I kept coming back to oceans um, and I had seen, you know, this is like 2018, you know, some of these, you know, interesting blue tech plays were starting to pop up. Uh, the intersection of, of ocean, you know, ocean data and fisheries was one that really interested me. Um, and I, I had conversations with a number of entrepreneurs. I met Courtney Opshog, who's the founder of our company um, in 2019. Um, and, you know, by, you know, six months later, she had raised her first pre-seed funding round and we sat down and talked about how we could work together. And that was, that was February before COVID. Um, you know, a month later, we were we were fundraising. Very cool. So let's talk about Blue Ocean Gear, and that's where you're at now. So the problem is, what what was the problem that is being addressed by Blue Ocean Gear? Yeah, I mean, the fundamental problem is that it is hard to find your stuff in the ocean. Um, whether it is, it's a big the, place. Let let me. It's a big place. It's big <laughs> and it's windy and the waves are tall and it's hard to see sometimes. And your stuff is not where you left it. Um, you can go put a lobster pot out there and the pot may have settled where it settled and the buoy may be somewhere else. Like that's the best case scenario and you're in shallow water. But if you think about putting a string of traps 20 miles offshore in three or four or 500 feet of water, a lot changes. And, you know, we started here, you know, I live in, I live in California now. The, the Dungeness crab fishery is not that different from the New England lobster fishery, but we started working with the Dungeness crab fishers here. And we also learned that gear goes underwater. Uh, when the currents come up or the tides come up, you can't even harvest your gear if you want to. Um, so that's the second problem is how do I know when it's up? And so um, that was really where we started. I mean, you know, the big the big picture is ghost gear, but we started with, hey, mm-hmm. um, you know, fishermen really are wasting a lot of time trying to find their gear. Um, and even if it's not absolutely lost, if it's misplaced, it's hours a day that are wasted. And how can we solve yeah. that problem? Hours that could be spent catching more fish. Yeah, catching more fish or, you know, being at home on the dock, right? It's a crew safety thing too, yeah. but it's an operational efficiency. Now, is this something that you just, I mean, you were talking in earlier conversation, just really, you know, what was your next venture? And you kept coming back to the ocean, to the sea. So being out in California, were, were you just listening and asking questions about what some of these like from these fishermen, like what some of these issues were? Did you already have a, you grew up in Rhode Island. I'm sure you were walking the beaches and seeing some of this gear that was actually getting washed up. Right. Right. So was it just conversations you were hearing and then it kind of clicked or was it something else? Well, I think, I mean, for me, I knew I wanted to be at the intersection of technology and the oceans. And I spoke to, I had conversations with some really interesting businesses, you know, everything from wave energy to, um, you know, creative aquaculture models to, you know, harvesting energy from differences in, in, in sort of water temperatures. I mean, really interesting stuff, but a lot of them were, were far away from being commercialized. And, you know, I think I'm not a technologist by background. I'm a business person and a salesperson and I like people and I like to get out and, and sell products. And so, you know, the, you know, the Courtney's solution was one that was immediately applicable. You know, she had been through a couple rounds of of prototyping. We had customers using it in the field. And so I felt like I could come in and, and really add value. And intuitively, I understood the market. I didn't have to sort of say, well, who are fishermen and why would they want yeah. this? I, mm-hmm. I grew up with mm-hmm. a scoutmaster who was a fisherman, right? I mean, I, there was, you know, three three houses from my house was the town dock. So it was just something that I felt comfortable with, you know, a lot more comfortable than, say, trying to figure out how to, how to sell power uh, to the grid. Yep. That makes sense. Right. So what is 
the technology. What does Blue Ocean Gear offer? Let's let's talk about what it actually is and how it works. Yeah, our, so our core technology is a small seven-inch hard shell buoy, and inside it, it has an array of sensors, um, including a satellite modem, radio transmitter, and uh, temperature sensor, and, and several other sensors that basically measure movement, um, and it even measures salinity because that's how it knows when to turn itself on and off. Um, there is no on-off switch, so you don't have to oh, ever open it. It charges wirelessly. It is just a, a little round. I don't wish I had one with me. I could show you guys. It's just a little round yellow buoy that you hook up to your gear like any other small buoy. Um, and that's really, that's kind of the magic of it. Um, it works with, with any kind of gear. Um, and then you can access as a fisherman uh, or as the owner of a fishing fleet, you can access the data from that buoy through a variety of, of interfaces, everything from an SMS alert when something strange is happening to we have a, um, an iPhone app to a web interface. Um, and now in the last couple of months, we've just been rolling out. Um, we can interface with their onboard chart plotters, which is really a fantastic you know, operational piece for us. So you can basically see your gear alongside everything else you're tracking, um, you know, as you're going through your, your fishing day. I'm sure that everything's customizable to the fleet and what sort of a gear you're you're trying to monitor and keep track of right so maybe you can go in and say and correct me i i, I don't know that's why I'm, i guess why i'm asking you but i would see there be value in saying if you're getting those alerts you can tell which piece of equipment that that those alerts are being attached to right yeah so if you're you know if it really you know we can customize the setup i guess the timing the way the sensors check the, how often they report um based on the kind of fishing you're doing so, you know, at, at one extreme, you might have an aquaculture farm, um, you know, so let's say a kelp farm off the coast of Alaska, where the gear is set out there. It's in a remote, a remote location. You really, you know, the focus there is, is leaving a piece of, leaving it out there for the season, not having to check on it too often and knowing if something strange is happening, knowing if the currents are up, knowing if your grid is ripped open, knowing if the buoys are submerged. And at that point, you probably have the buoy checking in once a day, unless something strange happens. And, you know, we have it set up that way. So if, if, if it does a defined behavior, you can get an alert. At the other end of the extreme, we've got a customer who's um, in the Atlantic sword fishing longline fleet out of New Bedford. And, you know, his captain is fishing in the Gulf Stream. And so his long line is 25 feet long and it's sorry, 25 miles long. Um, and it's moving anywhere from four to five knots. You know, he's getting 15 minute updates because he really wants to see what's going on, you know, as his gear is floating along and then he can recover it quickly as well. So it's a it's a really pretty broad spectrum. And you actually answered one of my next questions, which is where are we seeing this technology spread? Right. So you've talked about the Atlantic. You're out in California, in, in, in out in Alaska. So are you international? Have you seen this be adopted elsewhere? Yeah. So, so far, um, we have operations primarily in Canada and the U.S. Uh, we have a test program going on in Jamaica right now. We've got a project in Vanuatu with the fisheries department there. Um, we should have a buoy any minute now in New Zealand. Um, and we, you know, we've started getting inbounds from, from Asia and from Europe and South America. But frankly, you know, launching a business in COVID, we've, we've, you know, it's hard enough with time zones um, and not being able to travel. We've, we focused primarily in North America. And, you know, frankly, that's the best place to start because yep. the highest value fisheries in the world are basically, you know, lobster and crab and, um, you know, and salmon, which actually will be a market for us in the future as well. Yeah, it's a really good point, actually. I, 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 it slipped my mind, but you said 2018, correct? This is yeah, so February? We, yeah, so this business, I mean, the business, I joined the, the company in, in February of 2020. 
So, okay. um, oh, you know, yes. a month later, you know, we <laughs> so had, you had, you had a month, <laughs> we had two face to face meetings, um, and then we resume. So it was, wow. yep. it was an interesting, interesting period. It's interesting how many, how much stuff came about right around the beginning or during the pandemic, just people just decided that that was a good time to kind of start, you know, making a change. It's, it's interesting. I had a couple questions about the buoy itself because you kind of listed off a bunch of things that it does and how it works, and they're all fascinating to me. So I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. You said really quick salinity. It measures the salinity because that's how it turns on and off. Can you explain that? I, I, that that didn't really. Yeah, uh, we have sense. a we have a salinity sensor, um, and yeah. so when you put the buoy in the water, it recognizes that it's in a saline environment, okay. and it turns itself on. <laughs> and when you that take it out of the water, sense. it says I'm dry. And it turns itself off. And so that for also For some reason, helps. I was thinking it was like sitting in the water and when the salinity changes, it turns on or off for some reason. No, but that I makes mean, a whole lot more sense. In, in, the, in the future, <laughs> we know we, you know, we will be reporting salinity. Um, but for now, it's just the easiest way to avoid having an on-off switch, right? And our name of the game here was, right. to, was to design a buoy that the crew wouldn't have to change the way they fished. This buoy looks snacks just like the buoy they already have attached to their lobster pot. There's nothing. To, there's, no, there's no fidgeting to be done. There's no changing in their work style. They just just do it. Very cool. And then you mentioned wireless charging. Does it? Is there a way that it, it can charge while it is out there, or do you need to put it on a like you need to connect it to something when it's out of the water? Yeah, we have a, a cradle that's shaped like a quarter of, okay. of a buoy, and it's just like your iPhone. You come and you yeah. put it on the cradle, and it sits there and it charges. So, um, how long does the charge last? You know, it really depends. Um, anywhere from a few months to a year, depending on how often we have it sending messages. That's really yep. what, what what takes up the juice. So, again, like someone who's who's you know hauling their gear every night, but getting frequent messages. You know, the buoy might go a month between charges, six weeks, and somebody who's leaving their gear out for weeks or days at a time. You know, they you know mm-hmm. they go six, eight, ten months. And how does it communicate the data when it's when it's like transmitting? How does it do that? Because I've been on whale watches and I've been deep sea fishing and the there's no cell service out there. So how are how are fishermen able to get that? Is it all satellite based? Uh, it's satellite and radio based, primarily satellite. So our buoys are on the Iridium satellite network. They talk to the satellite. Satellite translate, transmits that data to our cloud. And then, you know, we we then deliver the data from the cloud to whichever, uni- whichever interface you're choosing to use. Um, and then we also have radio communication, um, which allows... The buoys talk to each other without using satellite, and soon um, we'll also allow the buoys to talk directly to your boat without using the satellite network. This is like the third recording in a row that we have done that involves satellites in some way as part of their technology. Yeah, our first I never thought I'd be talking this much about satellites. We didn't talk about satellites at all, actually. So it's interesting. Yeah, being in seafood, you don't you don't think it's something that you would really get into too much, but apparently this is the world we're in now. Data, data, data. The best way yeah. to do that is satellite, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so where are we at right now? Like, how many people are using it? How available is it? What is the process for implementing this into your fishing gear? Yeah, so we have, I was just thinking about this this morning, like what our, our, our number of customers is, but we've got probably somewhere between 30 and 40, maybe a little more mm-hmm. than that, you know, individual fishermen who've, who've used our, our product across more than 20 different discrete markets. Um and, you know, that's that's, as I said, sort of everything from from Maine lobstermen to New Brunswick snow crab fishermen to 
long lines to, you know, sword fishermen on the West Coast using deep set swordfish buoys. I mean, really kind of any any kind of gear you can think of gill netters. Um, yeah, we'll be we'll be rolling out with uh, black cod and halibut fishery this spring in Alaska. Um, and everyone is, you know, the, the feedback's been really, really good. It's, I mean, the the learning curve is about five minutes to use right. our product. Right. I mean, you literally just have to show the customer how to turn it on, how to charge it and how to access the data. And so, you know, mm -hmm. our focus right now is really on improving that user experience, making it as easy and seamless and as integrated as possible with the daily routine. Um, but it was really important to get the hardware right. And the feedback has been has been fantastic. Um, you know, there have been some other sort of similar types of products out there with much more niche focus. Um, and we kind of left those niches al alone and we're discovering even in those niches, people are coming and trying our product and saying, Hey, listen, this just, it just works a lot better. It's tougher. It's lighter. Mm. Uh, I can bounce it off the deck. It's just easy to use. So it's been, you know, we're really kind of in a, in a growth phase right now. We, we spent last year figuring out production, um, which is hard enough. And then you sort of layer in what was going on with the global supply chain. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of work around getting ahead of that. And now, you know, we're on track to really be able to deliver a lot of buoys this year. So we're excited. Very cool. I'm glad you addressed the, you talked about the um, response to it because that was my next question because, you know, we've talked about a lot of innovations in aquaculture and how aquaculturists are very open to innovation and trying new technologies and putting them out there. And we haven't seen the same kind of I guess, openness to innovative technologies as much in the fishery side of things. So I like that you took the approach of let's make this as basically as invisible as possible, right? Let's make it just a part of their normal routine. So nothing really changes for them, except they don't need to spend hours looking for their gear anymore because they just get this, they have the interface that shows them where it is. And and I love that you took that approach of, you're not really trying anything new. We're just going to make things easier for you. Uh, I think that was a good way to go. And, um, what is you mentioned the durability too? It's like what what are we looking at? I mean this this is not an easy environment. This is a scary, dangerous, tough environment that this thing needs to to survive in. So have you had any instances of, of these things failing or breaking or, or issues like that? How were you able to say okay, let's design this in a way that it, it's going to be able to stand up to the conditions it's going to be in for an extended period of time? Yeah, well, I mean the the person who who led the design of our hardware. Um, there's a guy named Bill Kirkwood who also has built uh, the AUVs at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute for years. I mean, okay. he's built things to go down to thousands and thousands of meters. Um, and so, I mean, our buoy was designed to go down, um, you know, to about 100 meters. And we've been down significantly deeper than that. We've been down to uh -huh. uh, almost 200 fathoms. So the better part wow. of a thousand feet. Wow. More than that. So that's, you know, at, at those depths, we start to get into a little bit of trouble. But I mean, there's not not too many plastic buoys um, that can that can kind of, you know, full of electronics that can withstand that. So, I mean, what we found right. is that our, our the some of the first fisheries that we worked with were the king crab fishers in the Aleutian Islands. So basically the scary part of the deadliest catch. I mean, they're in the worst water. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, right. And the currents are dragging things along at, you know, a couple knots and literally their entire string of gear with these, the main buoys are huge. They're like, they're several feet across. We'll, we'll, we'll get dragged down a thousand feet and come back up again with mud on them. And so we knew we were going to have to handle that, but having tested, you know, in those fisheries, Everywhere else really seems to be pretty easy. So that's, you know, we kind of started in the hardest places and then that's allowed us to, you know, when, when we get to the less challenging places, everything works better. The buoys transmit more often. They're using less batteries. Uh, it's been, it's been a good curve for us. I have a question about, so 
You said the initial feedback has been very well received. And I think Sean just talked about something that you've already mentioned, Peter, which is just you're not trying to make things more difficult. You're trying to just we know what the need is. This is going to make the process easier. And this has been a relatively short amount of time. You've joined back in, in 2020, which wasn't that long ago. Is there, and it sounds like this year is going to be even more more growth. You're going to have a lot more product. There's a lot more need. You're going to be getting it all, out all over the place. I don't want to go quite as far as what does the future hold yet, because I think we still have some time before we want to get there. But if we look at the data that's being collected, is there anything that's on the horizon? I guess I'm going to go there with, with what sort of data you're looking at collecting that you're not currently collecting. Yeah. And maybe the short answer is everybody has ideas for what other data we should be collecting. Right. I mm-hmm, mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, let's jump right into it. Right. The opportunity here is for us to be collecting ocean data from a whole wide range of anchored locations in the coastal oceans. And that is a unique that is a unique opportunity. You know, there's a number of several companies that are doing drifters. Uh, you've got, you know, NOAA. NOAA moored buoys that are tens of thousands of dollars, and there's a handful of those kind of scattered around the coast. But the idea to basically have all of the millions and millions of pieces of fixed gear in the ocean wired or not wired, but networked um, mm. is, is an amazing opportunity. And we've, mm, for sure. you know, in designing our buoys, you, you come up with something which is reasonably affordable um, and has the core value for our core customer base, which are the fishermen. And so we've designed around what they care about, which is where's my, where's my buoy? What's it doing when it's out in the water? Um, And, you know, we ended up with temperature, which has been a useful thing and has correlated a lot, you know, going forward, we're, we're looking at some of the other, other sort of sensors you might imagine to put in, you know, whether those are chemistry sensors, um, well, you know, a lot of people want to know what's going on um, from an acoustic perspective. And that allows you to perhaps, Talk to other sensors down on the bottom. It allows you to do things like listing for whales. Um, there are some relatively low cost solutions, but again, it takes us from a little seven inch buoy to something bigger. Yeah, and so we're point. thinking really carefully before we add to our sensor suite because you know the, just simply the location of the gear and the basic environmental data you can pull a lot from that. You know we can get to things like oh, wave yeah. height and currents um, as we start to sort of correlate what we see with what's otherwise available from a data perspective. So very cool. So if any if there's people that are out there that are listening and and you think that this could be useful for you whether on like a, a an offshore aquaculture operation or on on fishing gear um, what are we looking at for uh, availability price point things like that how how can a fisherman start implementing this into their into their operation yeah um, availability is is widespread um, you know we are. We have a significant production pipeline for the rest of the year. So where's you know, it produced? Uh, we're actually we actually do our manufacturing in California. Uh, we chose oh, cool. to okay. we source most of our components and do all of our assembly, um, you know, about 30 minutes away from our, our our corporate offices that are in San Mateo, California. So that really has allowed us to I mean, it's, it's been helpful. Right. We don't ever worry about stuff coming across in a tanker right, and getting yeah, stuck yeah. outside yeah. the port of L.A. We're sort of flying in parts and then assembling. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're producing here, um, right now we've got about a four week lead time, uh, on orders, you know, and I think hopefully that'll be shorter than that as we get farther into the year. Um, so it's, and you know, our buoys, you know, we're, they're priced right around a thousand dollars right now. I think that's, um, we haven't published that, but that's basically where they're coming out. And then there's a data subscription, um, which really varies based on frankly, 
you know, how much you're fishing. If you're fishing 12 months a year, um, it's going to be more than if you're a fishery that only fishes for two months a year. Um, and that averages around $20 a month is about where that comes out. And that's really primarily um, the, the cost of the satellite internet service. And then obviously, you know, the, you know, the, the interfaces that, we, that we've put on top of that. Now, does, yeah. And does that include like, are you kind of, when you get that subscription, you kind of buying into like a bit of a relationship with the company as well, like where you get customer support and stuff like that? Yeah, we're very hands-on, right? At this point, nice. you know, we're a small very company. Cool. We're, we're nine people right now and growing. Um, but I mean, I mean, hopefully I've gotten that sort of across. I mean, we've gotten to where we are because we spend a lot of time with our customers and it's uh, it's very, at this point, you know, we're, we're super hands-on and that's, um, that's kind of, you know, going forward, we're really looking closely at how to best build out our customer service team. Um, because there is, I mean, there's an element of going out in the field and helping people as they're sort of, you know, figuring out the, re- the, the best way to rig the buoys to make them work. And then the flip side of it is, is really making the most sense of the data they're getting and trying to help, um, you know, draw, draw, you know, basically new insights beyond, you know, I think beyond just where, where your gear is, you start to get historical data sets and you start to be able to sort of map it into, um, you know, what your catch was, where, when, why. Um, and the truth of the matter is, as you sort of alluded before, Sean, um, you know, there's there's a parts of the fishing industry that are still really behind from a technology perspective. And as much as um, yeah. deck houses are, are a lot of cases wired like like planes these days, there's still some pieces that are super manual and um, log books are, well, and the most fishing, fisheries are still paper. The fishing paper. industry is such a it's such an old more of a tradition than, you know, a job, really. It's it's a the fishing industry is very proud and stuck on the uh, this is how we've always done it. And so why would we change, you know, and, and it's a there's a bit of stubbornness there. And I understand that there's a lot of pride within the fishing industry. And, and I think that is uh, kind of where some of that comes from. But this is a, a very easy step to start to modernize some of those uh, somewhat outdated practices, for sure. Justin, you had a question. I, I, I jumped right over you and I'm sorry. No, well, I was jumping over everyone else too. So I wanted to go back to the data subscription. Is that like a cloud? Is there a cloud-based service that kind of goes with that so you can check backlog data? Because there might trends in your data is probably really important if you go back and look at certain things. And I was just curious if that was a piece of that. Yeah. So we the way we sort of think about it is you've got the interfaces that you use for the here and now, which is where's my gear or there's a problem. Yep. And that's, you know, again, like a text message or you pull it up on your iPhone um, or you look at your plotter and you sort of say, well, here's my gear right now. Here's what's going on. Um, and then when you get back to the, you know, to your desk or to the dock, you can go into the web interface and pull down the historical data sets and look awesome. at all the other stuff, right? You're not really tracking diving behavior, you know, on the day you're going to go haul, but then you go back and look on and go, Oh gosh, that was going on. That, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, my, my buoy was down, you know, for six hours. I mean, what was going on with the current that day? Um, yeah. You know, those kind of, or, Hey, I didn't know it. I really didn't realize it went that deep or, you know, looking this, there was this weird acceleration uh, that must've been when the wind came up. Right. You know, we had a, we had a buoy um, when the hurricane came through, you guys are in, you guys are up in this neighborhood when it came through like the 4th of July weekend off of Cape mm-hmm. Cod, we had a, a customer who was using our, using our gear and, you know, in hindsight, it turns out there was a bad batch of rope that a whole bunch of guys bought. Mm-hmm. Um, but we watched the buoy accelerate and then you knew and then all of a sudden it left and we knew it had snapped off and we watched mm-hmm. it travel around Cape Cod. Um, it was basically fishing off of, of, of a province town. We watched it go out to sea. We watched it wrap around and we said, OK, <laughs> it's going to come in at the National Seashore. And like, sure enough, 
And about an hour later, uh, two hours later, we got a call. Someone who had found her. He was he was surf casting um, with his nephew, who was a future uh, fishery student, um, and found this buoy and said, "Hey, you know, Uncle, I think this is something cool, and, and we should call this number." And they called us, and you know, and, and our customer had been watching it too, and he was based in Sandwich, so he was driving like crazy to get around out to the Cape. Yeah. And by the time he got there, the buoy had already, had already been recovered. But I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that for us really you know feels good. And this you know that's the that's the ghost gear piece, which I guess is the one we haven't really talked about, but that's the bigger, that's the big sort of environmental impact is the ability to recover lost gear. Yeah. Well, you're, you're also lucky that that happened uh, at a time when it still had enough juice in the battery. <laughs> it, yeah. You know, I mean, if it was found... out there for, had been out there for a couple months and then all of a sudden it breaks off and then you, you it dies as soon as you lose it. That would be, that would be tough. But what other data did you, so when I hear that story, I also hear that there was a rope that was not produced properly, yeah. right? So now you can track that and say, where else do I have that type of equipment or what other fishermen in the area maybe also have it and you can fix that problem before that happens to someone else. Right. And, you know, in, 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 in that case is an interesting one because it's sort of, you guys are probably aware, right? There's a lot of focus in the Northeast around whale entanglements and the yep. North Atlantic right whale. And what do you do with fishing gear? And, you know, there's between Massachusetts and Maine, you know, there's probably 4 million pieces of, of sort of fishing gear out there. Um, and there's a lot of concerns. How do you, how do you avoid entanglement? How do you manage that? One of the solutions that's been suggested is something called pop-up or ropeless gear, which is um, basically a way of, of wrapping up the line on top of your trap um, until you need it. Or in some cases, um, there's a company that they call Smelts that has a lift bag where you basically inflate, inflate a big bag and it comes to, you know, it comes to the surface. The question there still is, well, okay, well, how do you find it? How do you and find so it? Yep. We're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're being tested now um, by several of those manufacturers. We've got a program actually with NOAA uh, to do more of that. And, and in that case, that's what was going on. We were being tested at one end. At one end of the string of traps was our buoy, and at the other end was um, the rope was gear. And so we identified the problem right away, and you knew where it was when it happened. Um, and so I think that's, that's the other opportunity is really to be a complement yeah. to some of these other technologies. And it's, it's the alert feature. Um, you know, worst case scenario, you, you know, you know exactly when it happens, so you can go back, back and recover it. Um, yeah, yeah, and then the, you know, as you were saying, Justin, the the issues with with you know bad batches of rope. We've heard about this in, in a couple different time in a couple different places. What happens is there's a, you know, these reels are are sold to distributors, and everyone goes to the same distributor, the same you know the same ship chandlery at the end of their dock, and they go by yeah. their you know or however many thousands of feet of line, and then afterwards it's like, oh, by the way, this was a bad production batch. Um, yeah, so we, we can, we can document that. That's crazy. That's super interesting. I mean, Justin touched on this already, but like, you know, we've talked about things that you would like to implement and things that have been tossed around and people have come at you with different ideas on data collection and stuff like this, but what is the actual next step? What is the next thing that you guys are going to be doing? You know, the next product that we're rolling out that we are particularly excited about is basically a box on your boat that allows you to talk directly to the buoys. Um, and that does a couple things. One is it makes that sort of last last mile or two of location that much easier because um, right now we're sort of defined by how often we can send satellite messages versus mm -hmm. radio, which is, you know, almost instantaneous. Um, so that's, you know, that allows, you know, right now a lot of our customers are are using cell service or they're using um, what turns out to be pretty prevalent these days is satellite internet on board the vessel in order to get 
you know, sort of the, the, the last location data before they go and haul it. Um, you know, this box allows you to do that with only radio, um, but it also allows other f- vessels to monitor fishing gear. So if you can picture, I mean, right now, one of the big, one of the big problems that we, we find, um, the biggest really data issue that we're hearing from our customers is what we call gear conflict, which is the idea that you've got a whole bunch of strings of traps set out somewhere. Um, you know, more and more these days, people don't fish a single lobster pot. You know, they fish 20 or 30 or 50 lobster traps offshore, and that might be, you know, a mile long. And in some places, you know, in Alaska, it could be several miles long um, on these strings, or they can be also just strings of hooks that are down on the bottom. Um, and then you've got other vessels, whether they're container ships or whether they're trawlers or whether they're dredgers that are moving, moving through. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help anybody, right? If, 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 if a boat comes in, in contact with fishing gear, right, wraps its pot, its prop, yeah. um, it's done for the season or for a significant period of time. And obviously all that fishing gear is lost. The contents mm-hmm. of her lost, the gear's lost, and you now got ghost gear. Um, and so we've got several pilot projects working um, in both the Northeast and the Northwest where, you know, fleets are sharing data. Because um, right right now we've got a customer who literally the captain is taking screenshots of his plotter and then texting it to his friend in a in a, in a trawler um, to tell him like this Stay is where, where, where my gear is watch out for it right yeah. and so you've there's this interesting dynamic right and one hand fishermen <laughs> really they're super secretive about where their gear is. On the other hand, they don't want it run over. And sometimes, you know, that's the trade-off. Um, but that'll be a really interesting product for us uh, because, you know, we can, and obviously, you know, a lot, you know this, this you know, we, we call it the receiver, but it's really a transceiver um, that allows our customers to find their gear more quickly and sort of interact more rapidly with our technology. But also we can, we can sell it to other people who, you know, say, listen, you, you want to avoid, you want to avoid mm-hmm. the gear in this area. Here's a box, you know, here's our data subscription. You're good to go. So this this could make it possible for someone to not only track and see where their gear is, they can also see if anyone else has one of these buoys on their boat. You can also see that there's someone else's gear around as well. If, if they choose to share it, right? That's one of the other big pieces is that you right. as the owner of the gear, you're in 100% control as to whether or not you choose to share a location. Um, Interesting. You know, there's some other products that are used out there right now, but it's sort of all or nothing, right? I don't know if you guys know about... Uh, AIS, which is the, the vessel identification system that's used basically by the Coast Guard globally to track mm-hmm. vessels. That's what, you know, the primary device that Global Fishing Watch uses. Um, and some people are using that on their fishing buoys. It's illegal in the U.S. The FCC and the Coast Guard have frowned on it. Um, you know, some places people are still using it. But the problem with that is everybody knows where your gear is. You don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. If you're marking it with an AIS buoy, everyone sees it. So would the I mean, what would the benefit be of not, if you had this buoy of not sharing the location of it, would it be that you don't want to give away your, your hot fishing, fishing spot? spot? <laughs> yeah. well, right. I mean, that's that, sort of like kind of fishing it, 101, yeah. right? I mean, a lot of yeah. cases you've got your spots and you don't want to, you don't want people to know, you know, where you're fishing. You've, you know, you've yeah. spent years like figuring out where to go when and whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, understanding yeah, a certain yeah, bottom structure are, you know, or knowing that like when the tide's running here, this is where you go. Yeah, um, right. That's the stuff that's guarded in, in paper notebooks for generations. Yeah, um, if, if Joe's bringing in a bigger haul than everyone else on the docks, and then you find out that he's got this piece of gear, and then all of a sudden you can track it on a computer, you you know exactly where he's getting all those fish. So yeah, I get yeah. that. That's interesting. So, so that that'll be interesting it, it, once this uh, box rolls out. I almost call it the black box, like it's on an airplane, which I learned recently is actually orange, which I didn't know. Fun side fact. So you can find um, it. 
Yeah. So once this this is rolled out and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how it's used. Right. And how many people are willing to share the locations of them and, and share kind of that data with other people that are out on the water. It'd be super interesting to see kind of how that evolves over time. Yeah, maybe we get you back on, Peter, to talk about it once it's been, yeah. when you have some more data to share about it. I think uh, I could see this, just having that feature to be able to decide whether or not to share or not. It's no different than we have like these GPS things when we're out hunting in Vermont. And if you know you're in a good spot that you've been scouting like all summer long, you're not going to just say, hey, this is where I am. And everyone's like, oh, well, you get a big buck every year. So we're going to go hunt in your spots. So <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, right? But Depending on your location, if there's a lot of other, when you're out, whether dropping your pots or doing whatever it is you're doing, if you're noticing that there's other gear and stuff out there, you might say, well, this specific area, I might want to share my data because there's a higher risk of my equipment getting damaged. And I want to, out, you know, I got to weigh that benefit and that's on the fishermen to decide, I guess. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's certain places like outside Dutch Harbor in Alaska where there's just so much traffic, people fishing in that area, they really want to avoid it. And if you're in a place that's more remote. Uh, less obvious, you know, you may want to, you may want to keep it, put it on silent where it may not be as much of an issue. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Cool. So Justin, what else do you have? I think I I have a pretty good understanding of it. Uh, if anybody is interested in learning more about it or how they can order it, you can go to blueoceangear.com. It's exactly how it sounds. Blueoceangear.com and look at some pictures of it, some videos and see kind of how it works and stuff. But, uh, Justin, what else, what else do you have? I agree with you, Sean. I think I have a pretty good understanding. This is really exciting. I really like these are my type of episodes. These are my yeah. favorite type, Peter. You, the you do love the innovation stuff. episodes because there's so much happening in aquaculture and we're starting to dabble into these innovations in the wild fishery sector too. But I think my question for you, Peter, would be what else do you want to get out there while you have this platform? What else have we not sparked through our our questions that you you would want to have our listeners here? Yeah. I mean, the other piece that, you know, usually usually I start with um, that we really didn't talk about in this in this conversation is is the issue of ghost gear. Um, you know, it's it's a real big one um, from a lot of levels, right? We're all aware of what's going on with ocean plastic. Um, fishing gear is about half of the actual ocean plastic out floating around in the middle of the oceans. They did a sample in the Great Pacific gar- garbage catch, garbage patch, and it was about 46%. I mean, this is, you know, straws are fine. They kind of wash up on shore, you know, but this is really where the, where the problems lie. Um, and it also is hugely impactful on the marine environment. And that was, you know, that's the part, I guess, that kind of always strikes me the most. Um, you know, they did a study in the Chesapeake Bay a few years ago where they went and pulled out about 30% of the lost blue crab uh, traps. And within a period of several years, they doubled their catch. Um, and this is because, you know, ghost fishing is a real thing. And when you lose a pot or a net um, and it just sits there on the bottom, it catches fish and then those fish die and attract more fish and nothing escapes and it catches juveniles. It catches females. It catches other species. It entangles mammals. Um, And so this is not a benefit to anyone. No, it's a huge, huge hazard, right? It's in everyone's interest, right? If you're a fisherman, you don't want ghost gear because you got less crab to catch. And so, you know, that's really, I think, you know, the biggest opportunity um, for us to make a difference and really like, you know, the impact that we're focused on is if we can play a, a meaningful role in reducing lost gear from any of the fisheries we operate in, it has a direct and immediate impact 
on the health of those ocean ecosystems. Um, and so that's, that's, that's kind of you know, where we come from on that front. Fantastic. So if we don't, I mean, we don't have anything else, then I, I guess our last thing is what is the best way for people to get in contact with you if they want to work with you or have any questions or anything like that? Yeah. So you, you already got our website. Um, yep. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter and uh, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn as well. Uh, my name's Peter Macy. So yeah, feel free to reach out and uh, we you know, appreciate the opportunity to chat with you guys today. Yeah. And we'll link to all of those things you mentioned, Peter, in the show notes for this episode. For sure. So thank you so much again, Peter Macy, Chief Business uh, Operator. What am I thinking? Chief <laughs> Business Officer of Blue Ocean Gear. Uh, thank you again so much for, for joining us on the show and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Folks, that was our conversation with Peter Macy from Blue Ocean Gear. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And I hope you remembered to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen. So every time we have awesome conversations like this, they just get right on your phone without you even having to go find them. And we are on Twitter, at Pod. Looking to be a sponsor for the podcast? Want to be a guest or have topic suggestions? Fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you like what you hear and you really get a lot out of these episodes, it would really mean the world to us if you took two minutes and left us a quick rating and review wherever you listen. It's really helpful to us and we really appreciate the support. So thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye-bye.